The Athletic. The only way to score is, of course, to play uh, with a hand break off. Ian Stone, welcome back to Handbrake Off, the Arsenal podcast brought to you by The Athletic. Yes, we've had a month off from the financially tainted world of Premier League football to watch the purity and probity of the World Cup in Qatar. Uh, We are recording this podcast two days after the World Cup final, where, in a fairy tale finish, I think we'd agree, the biggest gang of cheating housing footballers on the planet helped Lionel Messi to victory. And if there was one thing that all football fans dreamed of, it's the greatest player in the world wearing a traditional Middle Eastern costume, raising aloft the World Cup. Uh, we'll talk through some of the highlights and lowlights of the Arsenal players at the World Cup, uh, as well as wondering who might be arriving in the January transfer window. Our guests this week are two Arsenal analysts and writers for The Athletic, uh, James McNicholas and Art De Roche. Uh, morning. Morning, Ian. Morning, Ian. Morning. Uh, I'm pretty good, actually. I'm quite excited, looking forward uh, to the return of the Premier League. Uh, but we'll get to that. I should say I was slightly cynical about the fairy tale of Lionel Messi winning the World Cup, but outside of France, and I should say, including my house, uh, it was almost universally celebrated as a beautiful ending to a great career. So before we get going, what's your favourite Arsenal-related football fairy tale? James, I'll come to you first. Uh, I, I, I slightly feel that this has been my answer to quite a lot of questions on this show, but it does feel like the right one to this, and it has to be Thierry Henry's return <laughs> to the club and his goal. What am I going to have? What am I going to have? That is, well, that should have is asked the me one. first. No, you're right. Thierry Henry's return to the club was an amazing thing. Alex Song. Oh, three for Henry. What a moment! It just had to be Thierry Henry. It was. And, you know, it was picture book stuff, really, in terms of him coming off the bench, the reception that he got, the goal that he scored. I can't look past that. It really was scripted, it felt, and uh, a beautiful moment. It was. Oh, you got the same uh, one? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I'll I'll try and think of a different one really quickly. Um, I guess to go with the the current team, whenever Emil Smith-Rowe or Bakayo Saka score, I feel like it's a fairy tale moment because I don't know, and I don't mean this to knock the other players, but whenever it's one of those two that scores, it does feel a bit different, um, especially if it's at the Emirates, that the energy just kind of goes, is ramped up 1,000 notches, I feel. Them both scoring against Tottenham yeah. in the 3-1 at home when we got the first, one of the first inklings of what something special might be happening you know, Tottenham get battered and all that, singing that song for the entire game. Yeah, I had Thierry Henry against Leeds. Also, by the way, against Sunderland as well, when he scored the winner in the last minute from Arshavin's cross. And uh, um, I, I like I like the away fans get something special as well, really, because that's a long journey up there. And he went and celebrated in front of them in that really weird blue and black sort of check shirt or whatever we were wearing on. <laughs> I, I actually bought that this year <laughs> um, shout out to classicfootballshirts.com it's one that I've wanted for ages and it was on there uh, I'm not going to say how much I spent on it because it was probably too much I may have a sickness but um, yeah, definitely got a sickness. yeah. <laughs> but I, I saw it and I was just like I'm getting it straight away long sleeve with the Barclays uh, badges as well so 
that is in my wardrobe and only comes out like every few months, but it's there. Still, there it is. I, I had a nice moment the other day. I was just um, messing about in my son's room and uh, I noticed he had a 1979 cup final shirt, yellow and blue cup final shirt, just sitting there. I had no idea he'd bought it. And there's something, I'm proud of him anyway, but that was another moment. You go, oh, proud of your son. Well done. <laughs> Arsenal players are either all back in England or they're on their way um, and we can look forward to resuming the Premier League where we're, hang on, let me just have a look to remind ourselves how we're doing. Oh, we're five points clear. Oh, we're doing okay. Um, It is worth asking how our boys did at the tournament though, um, at the World Cup and what impact the World Cup will have on the rest of Arsenal's season. Art, you wrote a piece of The Athletic examining how the Arsenal players got on. Uh, the nearest we got to the trophy was William Saliba as a non-playing substitute for the losing team in the final. Uh, let's start with him. Uh, Art, you said it was good for him to hang out with elite players. I mean, he does hang out with some elite players at uh, the Arsenal, but he doesn't have to. He doesn't have to defend against uh, Kylian Mbappe in training, does he? Yeah, that that was actually uh, one of Amy's sections, but I I can talk about it. <laughs> I think the point that she's made is really good because if you look at it in in the kind of big picture yeah he may not have played but he did get some minutes and that probably bodes well for next tournaments when you're looking at uh euro 2024 and then obviously the next world cup when you're looking at his age as well 21 years old and you're kind of being the one that's primed for those uh kind of upcoming tournaments that's only a good thing and then as you mentioned he's he's training against he got well he spends the first half of the year taking everyone, not by surprise, but a lot of the outside kind of Premier League by surprise. And then he spends the World Cup break training with Mbappe. I think when he comes back, you're probably looking at someone who's had better exposure than most have in this kind of month's break. So, um, And he's not been overexerted in any way. So... I think it's quite uh, an encouraging break from his perspective when you're looking at it through the Arsenal lens. James, what about him hanging out with Matteo Guendouzi for a month? Is that healthy, do you think? Well, I mean, they are quite close, you know. They they know each other from, obviously, their time at Arsenal, but also French youth setup. And in, in worse times for uh, William Saliba at Arsenal, there was a kind of solidarity between them. That's kind of the guys on the outside looking in at times with Mikel Arteta's Arsenal. But, you know, Saliba's standing and status in North London has changed pretty dramatically in the last few months. And I think it is almost, obviously it would have been nice had he won the tournament, but it's almost a perfect scenario for Arsenal in that he's been training at this high level of competition, as Art and Amy have said, but without sustaining an injury, without overexerting himself in games, and I think he returns with a massive motivation to play football because ultimately he's not been selected very much in the World Cup. And he's coming back to a club where he knows that if he's available, he's probably going to play. Does he start on Boxing Day, do you think, or is that a bit too soon? I honestly don't know. If you if, if we look at the calendar, most players were given at least a few days off, some more than others after the World Cup. So the final was on Sunday, probably returned to training 
I don't know, middle of this week, end of this week. I think that probably is going to be a bit tight for him, to be honest with you. You know, we saw Rob Holding play against Juventus. It wouldn't surprise me if Arsenal have to, you know, patch up a defence a little bit next week. But after that, you know, by the time New Year's Eve and Brighton comes around, I think he will be available, will be in the starting eleven. It's possible to pick him. You could look at the situation and say, look, he's not played very much football. How fatigued can he be? I just wonder if there might be a little bit of caution there and he, he might miss that first game, but we'll see. Uh, five uh, of the players uh, who went out to the World Cup represented teams who got to the quarterfinals. We'll start with the England boys. Aaron Ramsdale didn't play uh, a minute. Does that matter, James, do you think? I mean, obviously he'd like to play for his own pride, but he'll be ready to come back in, won't he, against West Ham? Yeah, it's one of those where had England uh, beaten America in their second group game and secured qualification, then maybe a lot of these squad players might have had a chance of a game in the World Cup. Um, Like William Saliba did uh, because they won their first two games for France. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I really respect, uh, and I know ultimately they went out and it was disappointing, but Brazil had managed to include every player in the squad in a game prior to their elimination, which is quite remarkable, really. And I do think players probably are hugely appreciative of a manager who does that, because as much as it's great to go to a World Cup, every player actually dreams of playing in one, and many won't. I think Ramsdale, maybe more than many other players in the squad, would have known that he was going most likely to not play. You know, Jordan Pickford was the established number one. And as much as you push in training, as much as you try and do, it's difficult to dissuade a manager from a selection like that. And in fairness, Pickford's always done very, very well for England in tournaments. So I think his job will have been taking part in training, trying to be a good member of the squad. And actually, as a goalkeeper, in training, you're worked very, very hard. If you're not playing games, you're probably the guy who has to go in nets at the end of the session when all the outfield players line up to do their shooting practice. Being a second or third choice goalkeeper, it is actually a fairly busy job in part of a training camp. But I think he'll be desperate to get back and play. We know how much he loves being on the pitch. He loves the interaction with the fans. So, yeah, he'll be very, very focused to come back and... You know, I think at the present point in time, he's joined top of the the Golden Glove charts in the Premier League with the most clean sheets. Yeah. Um, And that's a record he'll be looking to hold on to and hopefully extend. I'll ask you about Ben White. I mean, we we know there was some sort of training ground thing went on with Steve Holland. And um, I mean, it was always the case that Ben White was unlikely to play. And... As we know from reading about him, he doesn't really like football. (laughs) I mean, he plays it for a living, but he's not that bothered. It seems like the worst sort of scenario, really, for him to be out in Qatar and not playing one second in one of the more boring cities in Doha (laughs) in the world. There's really very little to do. He's another one uh, who's going to be raring to go when he gets back. Of everyone, this is just personal opinion. I I just don't think he'd be that bothered either way. Um, Yeah. And obviously he's come back in straight away, played uh, against AC Milan in Dubai and then played against Juventus as well. So I think he he's probably one of the ones you're looking at from that World Cup group where you're thinking, okay, it's probably a good thing that he came back a little bit early. Obviously circumstances weren't great, but now that you're seeing, okay, he's ready to go straight into the starting eleven. I think you're hoping that the themes that were there throughout the first half of the season with him at right back would just kind of come back into fruition. And I think you've already seen glimpses of that in in the games he's played where you see a real kind of 
vibrancy about Arsenal when they play the ball through him. So fingers crossed that kind of continues into Boxing Day and beyond. Yeah. And as for Bukayo Saka, uh, named in uh, L'Equipe's team of the tournament, James, are we in danger of taking him for granted a little bit? I mean, we still haven't got his new contract sorted, but we obviously weren't going to do that while he was away. But when Gareth Southgate took him off against France, I just thought that was a crazy, crazy decision. I mean, I understand that Raheem Sterling's done very well for England in the past, but Saka had Hernandez on toast in that game, and then he was taken off. There's no end to the talent of this boy, is there, really? No, I mean, to be named in the Keeps team in the tournament is a... It's some feat, actually, because the keeper are incredibly harsh with their <laughs> match ratings. <laughs> and a Brazilian, and a, and a Brazilian uh, publication as well, also named him in the team of the tournament. I mean, this guy has, has taken another step up in terms of uh, recognition on the world stage. He has, and I'm sure his agent will be f- feeling very pleased right now about now <laughs> because they're in the middle of those contract negotiations. And yes. Saka's stock has risen globally. I mean, it, I think it's just a case of the world finding out things we already knew about this player, how dangerous he is, how much threat he provides, how brave he is on the ball, the fact that he's added, you know, end product to his game as well. Uh, he had a really strong tournament. He was England's best player against France. I agree with that. One of their best players in the entire World Cup. So, yeah, he had a really terrific tournament. And I think, although it didn't end as he would want, some real vindication from the Euros, you know, in terms of how that ended and the pain of that. I think he he leaves this tournament with his head held high, with enormous amount of pride. He was England's, um, you know, player of the year last year. And I think he's going to run Jude Bellingham pretty close this year too, based on his performances in this tournament. Yeah, absolutely fantastic. Go on, up. I just found it really interesting to see how people talked about him during the France game in real time. In the first half, you guys can say whether your timelines were a bit different, but um, the non-Arsenal supporting England fans felt, well, from what I saw, they felt he was going down too easily, uh, especially when that uh, challenge from Upamecano was brought up. And then all of a sudden in the second half, he wins a penalty and they thought he was being manhandled the whole game. I found it quite interesting that whenever it's convenient for people who don't have to watch him every week, they can kind of flip between, oh, he's a diver or, oh, he deserves um, calls that he's not getting, just dependent on whether it's convenient for them. I just found that quite interesting. I think he's going to have to put up with this sort of talk, really. I mean, there has been, I've seen plenty of stuff on Twitter, not so much during the World Cup, actually, but I understand what you're saying. James, he's not going to be too bothered by it, is he? I mean, we've talked on this podcast quite a few times about how he needs more protection. That, I think, is what he's going to be bothered about, isn't it, really? I think so. And I think the France game, it was interesting, wasn't it? Because it was kind of a microcosm of what we see quite a lot as Arsenal fans. That will be something intriguing to keep an eye on in the second half of the season, the officiating around Saka. It does feel like in the last few months they've given him so little leeway. I think he's been very harshly called against. So let's see. I mean, yeah, it's something that I worry about a little bit because he does take a lot of contact. And He does. You know, I, I think the, the substitution against France is in some ways an interesting case in point because... While I agree he was England's best player on the day, he had also been sort of booted into the air about half a dozen times. And that that does take it out of you physically. And we don't want to see that happening when he's wearing an Arsenal shirt. 
No, we certainly do not. Uh, the two boys who play for Brazil, bit part players, obviously uh, a bit of a disaster with Gabriel Jesus. The uh, latest prognosis is uh, 25th of February for Jesus. James, I'm assuming that Eddie and Ketia has been drilled to within an inch of his life as to, to do what Gabriel Jesus has been doing for the last three months. We can get to whether we buy replacements or anything like that, but it's... Um, well, I don't even want to know. I don't. I don't even want to ask you how much of a disaster it is because we're not going to find out for the next two months. But it's one of those things we knew that we were going to get injuries during the World Cup, and this was just the unfortunate. This is the one that we got. Yeah, and I think it would have been probably in the top two or three that we didn't want to happen uh, in terms of his importance to the team, the leadership he provides, uh, what he does on the pitch as well. I mean that date you mentioned it won't have come from the club because clubs are playing their cards very close to their chest on this yeah. one as Mikel Arteta tends to do with injuries these days um they've not been particularly forthcoming but seeing as the players undergone some surgery I think it is a fair assumption that we're probably talking in terms of months rather than weeks it's a big big blow because you know if you think back to the end of the last period of Premier League play yes he was on a long run without scoring. Gabriel Jesus, I think he got into double figures, really, in terms of games without a goal. We were spending every week eulogising about his all-round contribution. And that's the task for Eddie now. I actually think that Eddie will score goals in this period. He's more of a goal scorer than Jesus, isn't he? Really? Uh, arguably. I think his poaching instincts are very strong. I think he was quite unlucky not to come away from the friendly against Juventus with uh, at least yeah. a, one goal, maybe two. And um, I think he'll score goals. The question is, can he match everything else Jesus provides? The dribbling ability, that relentless pressing work rate, the intelligence in terms of leading that press, when to do it, when to not. And, you know, what he brings in terms of his character and understanding what it takes to win. That's what's going to be, I think, hardest for us to cope without. It's going to be really interesting, though. And, and you know, Mikel Arteta has huge faith in Eddie Nketiah. He has since the day he arrived. He's spoken about his quality, his intention to keep him at the club. He ultimately got his way at the end of last season, signing him to a new long-term contract. Presumably, this is the exact scenario that he envisaged as a possibility when he did that. And it's over to Eddie now to deliver. He did deliver at the back end of last season. Arguably, this time, it's even more important. Quite. Actually, he delivered particularly against West Ham, who are our first opponents back uh, in less than a week's time. Gabriel Martinelli only played a bit part. I saw he had a good header saved in a group game, but that was, I think, his only minutes. According to the stuff I've read, he's back in training and he's got a big smile on his face and he can't wait to get going. Art, oh, he's going to explode back into uh, Premier League action, isn't he? Yeah, he's another one where you, you probably saw he got more minutes than most of the Arsenal guys, or not most, um, say players like Ramsdale and others, he, but not too much. So probably the, just the right amount, I'd say, where he's probably a similar one to Saka, where the world can finally realise, or at least the world who are watching Brazil finally realised what Arsenal fans were talking about, because especially in the first half of last year, oh, this year, sorry, there have been a lot of, fans outside of Arsenal have kind of taken the mickey out of the way he dribbles because it's not the most pleasing on the eye but as Arsenal fans have realised it's very efficient and he just took that into his Brazil form 
And I think basically Mikel Arteta said that he was at the game on Saturday, obviously watching it, and is ready to come back in. And I think, especially considering we don't know the extent of Reese Nelson's injury when he was forced off against uh, Juventus, I think that could be massive that Martinelli kind of comes in and hits the ground running. Quite. And also about where, uh, whether Emil Smith-Rowe is actually fit to yeah. start in the next few weeks. Three Arsenal players got knocked out in the round of 16. Matt Turner, Takahiro Tomiyasu and Granit Xhaka. I want to just ask about uh, Tomiyasu. Um, he wasn't fit, was he, James, going into the World Cup? I mean, he was part of the squad. They beat both Germany and Spain, but he didn't feel he played that well. No, he was very down, wasn't he, in his comments after the game. And he didn't start either of those games, I think I'm right in saying, against Germany no. and Spain. You know, I'm a little bit worried about Tommy Astor from the physical perspective because I think you could mount the case that he's not really had a sustained period of being fit for the best part of a calendar year. He's kind of been in and out. I think Mikel Arteta said the other day, Art will know better than me, but that he had a, a problem still and what hadn't been training the last couple of days. So... I think he's a bit of a close call for West Ham. I just desperately hope that he can have a bit better luck with his injuries because we know how good he is when he is available. Quite. And finally, Thomas Partey uh, got knocked out in the group stage with Ghana. But the only good thing, I think, was that it also knocked out Uruguay and made Luis Suarez cry. And I think that the whole of Africa would have enjoyed uh, (laughs) that moment. Just before we leave the World Cup, just... A brief thoughts on the World Cup. It was um it was the right ending, Art, wasn't it? I mean, in the end, I, I don't really want to love this Argentina team because, I mean, Romero and Paredes and Otamendi, I mean, my God. But Lionel Messi winning the World Cup in one of the best finals I've ever seen, it was, uh, it was a joyous thing, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, I think you're right. It's probably just about, by a smidge, the right ending because it's messy. If it, if it wasn't messy, then I don't think there would be any discussion. But as a whole, I, I just, I really enjoyed the World Cup. I think it was probably one of the best in terms of entertainment f- that I could really remember. Uh, so yeah, I think hopefully the kind of next tournaments are able to live up to it. I don't know if they will be able to, but one thing I feel like we saw from the final was Kylian Mbappe is going to come back with a vengeance and I, I'm going to look forward to that very much. It's really something to watch. And, and James, as for the uh, the stuff outside of it, you know, the human rights concerns, the, the fact that uh, being gay is illegal in Qatar, but it was nice that the World Cup was in the Middle East, don't you think, in terms of those countries? Yeah, and I'm sure it meant a great deal to fans in that part of the world and it became a sort of pilgrimage site. I know although Doha and Qatar are small places relatively, I think people travel from all over from all over the Middle East to come to this tournament. Yeah. Uh and it is important that football, you know, as 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 FIFA have made the point many times, goes to new parts of the world, takes the tournament elsewhere, and that they can build a football infrastructure in those places in doing so. Uh, I still think it's, a, a, yeah, there's a but, isn't <laughs> yeah. there? And, you Migrant know, worker deaths. I mean, it's horrendous. Absolutely. And and I I certainly felt conflicted about the tournament. From a football perspective, I can come away from it looking at the outcome like you and think, well, it's probably the right one, the fairy tale finish for Messi. And as Art says, you know, that, that final became a duel really between two star players in a way that's quite rare in football. It's rare. A, a team game to see two individuals going head to head like that. 
And I think ultimately the reason I'm sort of content this was the right outcome is that this was Messi's last chance. Whereas Mbappe, I think we can say with some certainty, will come again. <laughs> he, he will. And by the way, the, the fans of Argentina and Morocco, and I think Saudi Arabia as well early on, they made it. I think there was quite a lot of, it felt quite plastic in a lot of ways. There wasn't a lot of atmosphere as far as I could tell, but those sets of fans made it something. And I guess we should be grateful to them. This is Handbrake Off, the Arsenal podcast brought to you by The Athletic. Everyone else is winding down for Christmas. The Athletics Club podcasts are firing back up over the festive period to celebrate the return of domestic football. Catch Talk of the Devils, Handbrake Off, The Phil Hay Show, and all your favourite club shows. None of that World Cup nonsense is behind us. All are free to listen to, of course, on Apple, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. We were a bit uh, with the handbrake at time. Just from a perspective of the piece and our latest understanding on Mudrik, he is Arsenal's priority target for this transfer window. And a number of people with knowledge of the situation feel that there's a very good chance it will happen. People I speak to say, despite this public pronouncement about 100 million euros, privately, Shakhtar will accept a lower fee and that he is very enthusiastic about the idea of joining Arsenal with the priority being the Premier League. And so he could push potentially and I think Arsenal and maybe others will be hoping that him pushing helps bring down the price. Um, Arsenal may have other options but he is their focus and the Kroenke family are backing Edu, the technical director and Mikel Arteta and prepared to do so in this market to try and kick on and maintain their Premier League title challenge. Arsenal are ready to do business and he is their first choice candidate for strengthening their attack in the January transfer window. This is Handbrake Off from The Athletic. Ian Stone, James McNicholas and Art De Roche. That was David Ornstein uh, there speaking on The Athletic Football Podcast out in Qatar about Arsenal's interest and intentions of signing Mihailo Mudrik from Shakhtar Donetsk. Art, it does look like he wants to come and, and the club want him. How um, optimistic are you of seeing him in uh, by the end of January or maybe even a bit early? I, I think that's the main thing. You just don't want it to drag because if it does, you're, you're almost wasting your time and you just don't really want to get to a stage where you have to kind of bend to the other club's will because it is so late in the window. But sometimes, Art, sometimes with these things, you get a feeling that the player is using us to leverage other clubs to come in and and have some interest. But it doesn't feel that way with Mudrik. All his social media posts, he wants to be here. Yeah, I don't get that vibe uh, from him. And I think that's a really good thing. And obviously, the interest isn't new either from Arsenal. They, They were looking at him in the summer. So there's kind of, I guess you'd call it goodwill. From, from both ends. But yeah, my kind of optimism would be if it is done early and then you can kind of tie up 
and concentrate on your business on and off the pitch. Whether their Arsenal are able to do that, I'm not sure because, as David mentioned, Shakhtar are being quite stringent in their demands. So, yeah, I think the the main thing that is encouraging about him as a player is he's just so direct. And when I say that, I don't mean he's going to go just sprint at you all the time. He does actually have a bit of variation to his game because he's very technical, but he's just very quick in making his decision. And uh, if Arsenal are able to add someone like that, I'll be uh, more than happy. Yeah, I mean, he's a wide forward. James, with Gabriel Jesus getting injured, does that change things a little bit? Or in the end, we still wanted him, but we also have to look for a forward, which we'll get to in a second, because I know you wrote a piece about the profile of a number of players that we could go for. But, I mean, I guess Mikel Arteta and Edu and the rest of them are discussing this on a on a minute-by-minute minute basis. But they want Mudrik and he wants to come. So, you know, let's get it done, right? Well, I, yeah, I'd like to think it was that simple. I don't know. <laughs> I know. It's when I said it, I thought, well, that sounds the easiest thing in the world. Yeah. And also at what price, you know. Yeah. Arsenal were looking at Mudrik in the summer and I think Brentford bid 30 million on deadline day around that and it was rejected. My understanding at the time was that if someone had gone to about 40, maybe there was a deal to be done. Since then, you know, Shakhtar have started quoting the Anthony price that Manchester United paid, you know, getting close to 100 million and saying Mudrick's as exciting a prospect. I think at, at that kind of price point, you know, this stops looking like the right deal for Arsenal. So it'll be interesting to see how much of that is posturing and whether there's a deal to be done for a more reasonable fee. There are people involved who, who seem to think that's possible, but that kind of brinkmanship can take time. And Shakhtar are a club who are quite stubborn sellers. You know, they know the value of their players and they can hold on to them. So I think this one could run and run. I'm sorry to say, Art, but we'll, <laughs> we'll see. I mean, hopefully not. I think Arsenal have needed a wide player for some time. They were looking at adding one in the summer. Only the injuries to Mohamed Elneny and Thomas Partey caused them to pivot to trying to add a central midfield player. So I think they see this as kind of a long-term need and something that's part of the, the broader strategic plan. What would be interesting is whether they deem the centre-forward situation such an emergency that they need to go and do something in the market. Personally, I'm not convinced they will. I think that they'll... They'll make do with what they've got up top and give Eddie and Ketia his moment. But um, I could be wrong about that. It'd be interesting to see how that plays out. And let's be fair, that didn't work for us last year, did it, Art? We basically did the same thing in January. We went, oh, you know what? We'll just sit with uh, with uh, Alexandra Lacazette and Eddie in reserve. And um, it, it, it only... It, well, it didn't work out in terms of qualifying for the Champions League, did it? No, you saw they... Didn't want to be too reactive last year, but in a way, I think they probably, it's probably the wrong way to look at it. You just have to see what is going to get you over the line and try your best to kind of get those players in. There's different circumstances now though, isn't it really? I mean, Edu and Arteta can can go to Josh and say, look, we knew this was the season when we thought that things would work out well, but obviously we've had an injury uh, to one of our key players. And if you want to take those steps forward, we're ahead of schedule, really. You have to spend some money and we have to spend it now Yeah, and I if we can find the right player. I think Josh will probably understand that as well, even better than, say, last year when he was in the <laughs> in the Amazon documentary every, every other episode. Um, I think now he'd probably 
understand that really, really well, hopefully. And I guess the the kind of conundrum then becomes who is the right player? Do you want someone like Gabriel Jesus or do you want someone who's a little bit different and gives you a different kind of dimension? And I know James has been thinking and, and writing about that. So You have, James. Did you come to any conclusions? I mean, you looked at Evan Nielsen, Ivan Tony, Muani. I guess, uh, did you look at Vlaovic as well, who seems to be making eyes at us again? Well, um, the, way that, the way that we worked it, because the assignment I was given was how could Arsenal replace Gabriel Jesus? And so we used data to kind of <laughs> uh, draw a profile of the way Jesus contributes to the team and find players who emulate that to different degrees. And it was interesting seeing who came out. I mean, Evan Nielsen at Porto came a very close match. Mwani, who I don't think many players, many fans rather, would have known too well prior to the World Cup, but was a late call-up for France and ended up contributing, playing, coming on in the final during the first half as well. I think he's a really interesting player because he's a guy who can play through the middle but also play out wide. He made the difference, didn't he, in the final as well? Well, he did, right up until Emmy Martinez produced one of the greatest saves I've ever seen, I have to say, in context. Absolutely phenomenal save. And, you know, credit to Emmy, who's really done well for himself. World Cup winner now. But um, I I think what's interesting is that if you're looking at adding a centre-forward in January, yes, you could say who can emulate what Gabriel Jesus does. But I think if you look at Eddie, stylistically, while he's... Uh, execution and his uh, productivity might be different to Jesus. I think stylistically he is capable of sort of similar traits. I do wonder if you're going to add a centre forward if there's a room for someone who's quite different in profile to Gabriel Jesus. You know, could you Olivier add... Giroud? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Bring well, him back. I mean, you joke, but someone in that mould, I do think, like, could be an interesting uh, counterpoint because you've got to think if you sign someone at this point in time, how do you justify their their continued inclusion in the squad? And I think with Arsenal being able to name so many substitutes these days, the possibility of adding a striker who's very different stylistically, who can give you a different type of presence in the penalty area, is really exciting. And for example, I mean, someone who came up on our list as someone who makes an overall contribution to the team uh, was Ivan Tony. But if you think of yeah. Ivan Tony and Gabriel Jesus, they're actually stylistically quite different and potentially quite complementary. You know, you could see two players like that potentially in the, in the same team or playing as a partnership or, you know, Tony coming on and adding some, a very different dimension to the Arsenal attack. Uh, I think there is room in the squad for an addition like that. It's just whether or not Mikel Arteta and Edu see it that same way and whether or not it's financially possible uh, alongside what else they want to do. I'm sure we'll be talking about this a lot more in the next month and a bit. Um, For the Arsenal women, well, it's a couple of things, really. Uh, Nominations have been announced for a Sports Personality of the Year. Uh, Beth Mead, my son, told me this. She's something like 80 to 1 on to win because of her fantastic contribution in the Euros in the summer. Obviously, she got a long-term injury. And then Viv Miedema uh, ruptured uh, what turned out to be her ACL. I mean... That's talk about the Arsenal men needing forwards. Oh, the Arsenal women probably their need is even greater. Yeah, it was re- both of them really annoying because not just because of who got injured, but the kind of what was going on in each game at the time, both late on in each half not really the most kind of aggressive tackles or not even no. a tackle on Miedema. 
uh, just kind of a stretch for the ball and you get the one injury that you don't want. And I think going into say January and the rest of the season as a whole, they have got like attacking threats that have been performing well, even when both of those um, players have been fit. You look at Stina Blackstenius and what's really stood out for me is her channel runs. Um, she was doing that very early on in her Arsenal career, but even in the last few weeks, um, I think if you look at the Juventus game at the Emirates, that's where Arsenal's winner comes from. And you'd say they're probably more unselfish runs. And then you've got Caitlin Ford as well, who's probably been the driving force of the, the attack for the better part of three months, really. So they still have players there who are able to threaten teams. I just think if you're looking at depth, if you want to properly challenge for the WSL this year and go, obviously they've qualified for the quarterfinals of the Champions League. But if you want to go into the even latter stages, you may need to kind of pad out that that front line a little bit more. Um, so I think the the one benefit they would have is they only have one more game in this calendar year. Um, and hopefully they should be able to focus on on what they do recruitment-wise a little bit more. Well, let's hope they do something. And also good luck to Beth Mead for Sports Personality of the Year, and she definitely deserves it. Um, let's have a song uh, to end. Um, I'm just going to start this one just because uh, uh, really a hero of mine, Terry Hall, uh, died yesterday at the age of 63. Uh, if you don't know, he was the uh, lead singer of the specials. Seminal. Band in the late 70s uh, and early 80s, um, two-tone, part of the two-tone movement. In fact, really, uh, the, the the leaders of it. Um, and um, I was thinking about some of their songs, um, and I was thinking about the fact that uh, everyone's going to have gone, gone home from uh, Qatar, and Doha is going to be a ghost town, I think, uh, for the next, uh, well, until they have another major football tournament there, I guess. Uh, so I'm going to choose uh, Ghost Town. James, what you got? Yeah, that's a great choice. Uh, I was potentially thinking about doing something for the specials, but it's Christmas coming up. Um, so I'm going to pick a Christmas song. I'm going to go for uh, Stop the Cavalry by Jonah Louis. But ironically enough, I hope the cavalry don't stop. I hope they arrive in the January chance window. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Um, what have you got, Art? Uh, I'm not really going to take the pick today <laughs> no you're not no, I, I was i was thinking to but um i'm just gonna go for a calm one in the kind of build up to boxing day resonance by home because it's quite a calming song and it it's one way i think if you're driving or if you're just doing something you can kind of drift away and i just want to drift uh, fast forward to boxing day and let's get underway yeah, let's get going quite. Uh, thanks, James. Thanks, Art. Thanks to Guy, our producer. And thanks to you guys for listening. And happy Christmas, uh, everyone. Happy holidays, as you uh, you say now. And um, see you on the 26th on Boxing Day. This has been Handbrake Off, the Arsenal podcast brought to you by The Athletic. I'm Ian Stone. Have a good week. ta <laughs>